Welcome to the Sound Africa podcast. My name is Rasmus Bitz, and I have a quick message for you. What you're about to hear is part number two of a two-part series called The Wait is Almost Over. So if you haven't yet heard part number one, please stop right here and go back and listen to that first. If you haven't heard The Wait is Almost Over part one, you can find it on our website soundafrica.org or in iTunes or in any other podcast app of your choice. But if you have heard part number one, you're ready to hear part number two. And let's just uh, pick up the story where we left off. The two aid workers, Imtiaz Suleiman and Anas Alhamati from the South African organization, The Gift of the Givers, had successfully negotiated the release of South African Yolandi Koki, but her husband was still in captivity. It is again Micah Reddy who has the story. It was January 2014, and Yolandi Koki was finally free after seven months in Al Qaeda captivity. She was being driven away from her captors and her husband Pierre with a terrifying message echoing in her head. Tell her that she's got one week to raise three million dollars, otherwise we'll give her Pierre's head in a box. I think that was the most extreme, the extreme moment of, every, of the whole ordeal was that moment when he said that. And I think I don't think Anas really realized I was understanding completely what he was saying. Anas was trying furiously to translate to English and he just he was trying to soften what he was saying, but I, I heard it, what he'd said. In the hotel in Aden where Yolandi was taken to, she finally heard the voices of her children Peter and Lise. It was an important step that helped drag herself mentally out of the dark void of captivity. She then stayed in Anas's house while waiting to return to South Africa. There's a constant looking back for me. I'm an introspective person. So I look back and I can see how God just really blessed me with that time of adaption in Anas's house with his wife and his little girl. And I, in that stage, found out that she'd be, she was pregnant six weeks. So there was a lot of excitement. I was released and she was pregnant. And just being normal was a very, very good stepping stone for me personally. Just playing with his little girl just really brought the healing process into a start, kickstart the healing process for me. A few days later, Yolandi was reunited with her children in South Africa. And I, I made a promise to the kids that we'd bring your dad out. That was my first words to them on the airport. We're going to get your dad out. But the Al-Qaeda ultimatum was still in effect. And Imtiaz and Anas from Gift of the Givers were frantically trying to resume negotiations for Pierre Corky's release. At the same time, the South African government was being drawn deeper into the matter. But we'll get to that shortly. For the time being, Yolandi was free, but still trapped in her thoughts. She couldn't help but dwell on the entire series of events that she'd gone through and that her husband was still experiencing at the hands of Al-Qaeda. In her Bloemfontein home, Yolandi tells me about those early days in captivity, when the kidnappers separated her from her husband, only to then bring the couple back together at an undisclosed location. So, um, so then Pierre was brought to me and we 
We had the next 221 days until I was released. We were together and we, we were not moved in that time. Again, your whole world has fallen apart. You've got nothing. They've taken everything from you. They take your clothes, everything. So you, you just you just couldn't care what and where you are anymore at some stage. You just stop worrying about, well, whatever. Will be, will be now. We eventually pieced together a approximate um, location, uh, but we were never 100% sure. Um, it was obviously in a village. Al-Qaeda doesn't have a specific place, so they, they have an arrangement with villagers or tribes to protect or hide their hostages in. They were trying definitely to make us understand we were in a certain area and we managed to figure out by after a couple of weeks we couldn't be in that area, that wasn't possible. Um, so the, 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 the tribal people would take care of the food and etc. And the guards, there would be guards, Al-Qaeda guards to, to take care of the hostage and make sure they don't escape. Um, initially we were just confined to the room and the guards would be next door. Just just a bare room with nothing in, just small, three by four meter room, and there was nothing in it. Um, everything we eventually accumulated was because we'd asked and we kept asking for things we needed, just normal things like um, a mattress or a bar of soap or a towel or something. And then they they managed to put up a metal door between us and them, so it was the reality of being locked up was very strong. Uh, emotionally, spiritually, hearing that door lock. And behind the locked door, the Corkies focused on regaining a semblance of normalcy. So we tried to set certain time zones for the day. We would at this time do this and at that time do that. And Pierre made me do exercises and he did exercises. And we would just try to get through this day. We, In the beginning, we were managing our time according to the prayer times. Every prayer time has its own name, as you know. Um, so we would construct our day according to that, but later on we managed to get a clock out of them. But then the clock was no good. It, it really, every minute just seemed like it was an hour long. You should see that clock ticking. I think only one minute, two minutes have gone past of this day. When are we going home? We would alternate between praying and singing and doing exercises and just talking, reminiscing about the past. Um, trying to figure out how come Al-Qaeda is doing what they're doing, dreaming about the future, if there was going to be a future, and regrets, you know. If there's ever a time in a person's life when you can dish up everything you've done wrong, and you dish up everything you're going to do wrong as well, is then when you're sitting there as a hostage and you've got nothing to do, you just can't stop thinking about all the mistakes you've made, and wishing that you have one more chance to fix things in your life. And during the days that never seemed to end, the Corkies got to know their captors. Initially they were very strict with us, very distant and, and rude. Um, as time went by and the guards changed, um, we managed to get one or two really nice guards, some really human, we connected on a human level. And as Pierre got sicker, I had to engage more with the guards than I did in the beginning. Um, and so we managed to have some simple conversations and um, it was mostly about what we needed. And 
But it eventually turned out that they started asking us for if we if we managed to get some medication, then they were and they were ill. Then they'd asked us for our medication to use. So it became quite an interesting um, situation. And did you have any sort of um, engagement with the outside world, uh, television, for instance, or did you did you manage to interact at all with the villagers? Not at all. We were we were locked up. There were no interaction. The guards had a television and we could only discern snippets from what was going on in the outside world um, from what we could overhear of what was going on on the television. But they loved channel hopping, so it was difficult to keep the thread going <laughs> what was going on. <laughs> At some stage, Pierre asked them if we could go outside for a time. Being South Africans, we are outside people. We like to be outside and... They did. They did eventually allow us out for ten or fifteen minutes into a very small courtyard um, to be in the sun, and and that was really precious moments for us. Uh, later on, they became more relaxed with us, and we would stay out for forty-five minutes or an hour or something. But we weren't. Uh, we weren't going out every day, and that was also um, dependent upon the drones. The constant hum of the drones was a source of great anxiety for both the Corkies and their captors as well as the local villages. The US first started flying armed drones over Yemen in 2002, and in later years it intensified strikes against alleged al-Qaeda militants. The statement comes as the US unleashed a barrage of drone strikes, carrying out at least nine attacks since July 28th, killing more than 34 people, and broadening, most importantly, the target list beyond high-level leaders. As in other countries where the CIA and Pentagon operate drones, the drone campaign in Yemen has drawn widespread condemnation from locals and the international community. It is shrouded in absolute secrecy, and by redefining the term militant to include just about every adult male in a strike zone, the U.S. government has tried to obscure the civilian toll. The strike was carried out by the U.S. military's Joint Special Operations Command and targeted vehicles that were part of a wedding procession going towards the groom's village. According to the Human Rights Watch investigation, quote, some if not all of those killed and wounded were civilians. Reporting on U.S.-led operations in Yemen is extremely difficult. But according to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which keeps detailed data on the drone program, as many as 101 civilians have been killed in confirmed drone strikes since the campaign began, with up to 160 additional civilian deaths in possible drone strikes and other U.S. operations. It remains unclear if it has reduced the threat from al-Qaeda or, as Yemeni experts have warned in the past and continue to warn, driving more people towards extremism. But the fear of being killed in a drone strike was just one among so many other fears. Pierre's health was rapidly deteriorating, and the Corkies knew nothing of their efforts to save them. It seemed increasingly likely to them that Pierre would waste away from illness somewhere in remote Yemen. The tears in his groin had, had opened up, and so the, the, the insides of the urinary system was moving in and out, protecting and retracting all the time, and that was... Really, it's hard to deal with that all the time, thinking, I wonder when this is going to pinch up something. or We don't know when we're going home and if we're going home. And, and then by the time I was ready to be released, or I didn't know, of course, that I was going alone. Um, the last 10 days, he, he, he 
he had a fever and he got an ear infection. He was he was deaf in his one ear from small, but he got an ear infection and his other ear went completely deaf. He was just he was deaf as a doornail. And the shock of that, Micah, I mean, here was my friend and my companion. Now we couldn't even speak to each other. He's just deaf. It was during this extremely trying time, watching her husband's steady decline, that Yolandi was suddenly freed. She knew nothing about Anas and Imtiaz, who had made her and Pierre's fate their own. But after her release, she formed a close bond with the two unlikely negotiators, to whom she owed so much. But their work was far from over. Pierre was still held hostage, and if illness didn't kill him, it looked like Al-Qaeda would, with the deadline for his execution just days away. Here's Imtiaz Suleiman again. Anderson in the meantime was in Aden, and then I said, look, keep the contact open. We got one out, we still got to take another one out, so we have to show good faith, because they gave you for free. So he spoke to them on Sunday night, he said, I'm coming back. But he said the tone now became very aggressive. The same people, the tone changed completely. Where's our money? So he said, but you said eight days, and I told you there's no money, and the lady has to go and collect. She's not a rich person, so he has to find money. No, where's our money? Because he said, I'm coming tomorrow. So Monday night he goes back to the same place, meets them, but he said the whole body language, tone, everything was so menacing. And they told him, where's our money? They were sort of angry. I said, explain to them that today's $3 million is not like small money. South African money is 35 million rand at that point. We can't get that kind of money. It's going to take a long time. So they were not interested. They want their money. So he went back the next day trying to keep the dialogue. And then they said, look, maybe we should just take you away. So he said, fine. You won't even get $50 for me. So they looked at him and they sort of thought, yes, who's going to give us $50 for this guy? And they said, <laughs> they just kept quiet and they took him away. But he said, you could see there was, a, there was anger. There was sort of, uh, not anger, wrong word. They were more sort of anxious, anxious, anxious that they really needed the money now. So I'm not sure if they made a mistake by giving Yolandi to us without money and thinking that this money will come afterwards or they got grilled by their leaders. How can you release without money? I don't really know what happened, but the tone had changed. So Wednesday when he calls me, he says, this is what happened. I said, get out of Aden. He said, what do you mean? I said, get out of Aden. Move. This doesn't look right. I got a very bad feeling about this. Get out. Relations with Al-Qaeda had taken an unpredictable and rocky turn, and Anas, worried about what might happen, had left Aden and taken refuge with members from his tribe in the region. As the deadline for Pierre's ransom approached, the phone lines to Al-Qaeda went dead. Anas tried frantically to get through to the kidnappers, but to no avail. On Friday night, shortly before midnight, he called Imtiaz in South Africa. He says, what should I do? I said, try one more time. I think they're going to answer the phone. So he calls after midnight, and the guys answers, answers the phone. Anas tells them, I'd like to talk to you. They say, we also like to talk to you. So, can we meet? Come again in the desert. Now, are they going to kill him? Are they going to talk to him? Now I'm left with this dilemma. Anders phones me, he said, what should I do? It's, a, it's one hell of a risk. I tell him, I think they want to talk. Go. So Anas again drives into the desert. In the early hours of the morning, he links up with Al-Qaeda and again tries to explain that meeting their demands would be impossible. The response he gets is hardly what he'd hoped to hear, but could have been much worse. We gave you two more weeks, but if you don't, you know what we can do. In addition to extending the deadline, 
Al-Qaeda also agrees to drop their price to $1.5 million. Still an impossible sum for Yolandi to raise, but a sign of progress nonetheless. What happens next, though, is a case of frantic diplomacy, secrecy, bureaucratic short-sightedness, and a breakdown of communication, all coming together to form a thick and confusing fog that risked derailing the negotiations so far. It began following Yolandi's release, when the South African government decided to throw itself behind the effort to free Pierre. Anywhere in the world when the South Africans are kidnapped, I mean, it's our concern to, to see that we, we get that person back to safety. Uh, it's a responsibility of the government. That's Ibrahim Ibrahim, South Africa's Deputy Minister of International Relations. But we have taken a decision that we could not pay ransom for, for people being kidnapped. Because otherwise it means that uh, uh, it will encourage terrorists to kidnap South Africans because they know that they will get ransom from us. You see. But when news of Ibrahim's trip reached Anas in Yemen, he immediately thought it was going to be a big mistake. On the 20th of uh, January, about, uh, I heard there is a South African delegation that will come into Yemen. With the Deputy Minister of International uh, yeah, Relations. Yeah. Exactly. I say, oh, it's a horrible mistake because they will say they are coming to back. But I know the South African government, they won't pay. They just come maybe to meet the president and the diplomatic efforts, but in the ground, nothing is happening from there. So you realized this was a mistake early on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I talked with Dr. Suleiman. I told him, please, let me finish my work. Let me finish this. I, from the beginning, I told Al-Qaeda and I talked to all of them. I told them that South African government, they don't care and they won't pay. Okay. But when they come now, they will say they pay you and you took our money. Nevertheless, the deputy minister entered into discussions with the Yemeni government. Yemeni officials agreed to attempt a prisoner swap between Pierre and a high-ranking Al-Qaeda operative they were holding. And then the intelligence officer told me, look, you want this person, he's an important person in Al-Qaeda. If we release him, it will be a political decision. So we left the matter there and then I met the prime minister who belonged to an opposition party and I met the foreign minister and put to both of them whether there's a possibility of exchanging this person with, with Kurki. They said, well, that's a political decision and, and they didn't give me a, a straight answer. Then my last meeting was with the president, Hadi. That time there was a national dialogue was taking place and that was the last day of the national dialogue. Apparently, one senior person from the North who was part of the National Dialogue was on his way to the National Dialogue. And his driver stopped the car at a traffic light and he was assassinated in broad daylight. So the president had to go to the National Dialogue to calm the people. So you could see the situation there, that, uh, that uh, the security situation was, was quite bad. So while the deputy minister was hoping for the Yemeni government to do more to secure Pierre's release, Anas al-Hamati had a very different perspective on the situation. This is the truth. Uh, the deputy minister and South African delegation came to Yemen and they met the president. They talk, okay, then they go back to South Africa. After that, I received a call from Al-Qaeda. They said, okay, we have uh, information that uh, confirmed that you took uh, $2 million uh, from uh, South African government. 
what time we can go to fetch our money. We said there is no money. They said it's okay, all government around the world, they say that, but under the table they pay. I said this is the truth. They say you pay the price and you know what we can do. They sent me the picture of pump set. Pump set. A bomb vest. Yeah. A bomb vest, yeah. They said we will give you, we will wear you this in your bedroom in front of your family if you don't give us the money. That's why on 25th of January I left Yemen. We don't know what efforts were actually made by the Yemeni government to reach out to Al-Qaeda and negotiate for Korki. But in late April, the Yemeni military began a major offensive against the armed group. It was a major setback for negotiations, and all hope of making a deal with Al-Qaeda receded. With Al-Qaeda having broken off communication and the ongoing offensive adding to the difficulty, Imtiaz and Anas struggled to devise an alternative plan. After three weeks or so, I said, Anas, you know what? I know it's risky. But you have to go back to Yemen. We have to take you in undercover. And after three weeks, we took him undercover. He went back into Yemen. Only the government knew, and two or three members of his family knew. Had him in a hotel and then took him to his tribal leaders. And I said, because we can't talk like this from outside the country. You have to be face to face. And the tribal leader actually came to see him in the hotel where he was staying in, in Sana. And he says, look, the tribal way is one leader talks to the other tribal leader. But we don't know which tribal leader is linked. So. We'll just phone in, in Aden area, you know, in, in, in that region, we'll call a whole lot of tribal leaders. So he started making calls. Eventually, two guys responded. They said, yes, we know where Pierre is, we know he's alive, we know he's got an ear infection, and we know he's not well. Now, they can't know that information unless those, those Al-Qaeda directly told them that. And he says, but we don't want to talk, they don't want to talk to you, and they don't want to talk to Anas. They want you to hand Anas over and to hand the money over. But reconnecting with Al-Qaeda wasn't exactly easy. After that, they tried to contact first time with Al-Qaeda and they said, where is Anas? We need Anas. We need our money back. Give us Anas and we can talk about Pierre. They told me about that. That makes me very scared, in fact. Uh, then I changed my, uh, my, my living place to another place also for a second time. For third time, sorry. Uh, and I told him that we continued. They just said Anas is outside Yemen at the moment. In the meantime, I increased the social work. I told Anas, you can't do it openly, but your team members can do it. So we started increasing more and more areas. And I said, we have to win more tribal leaders over. After a few months, as we were getting closer to Ramadan, the tribal leader said, you know what? You guys have done so much of stuff here. Now it's an embarrassment. How can you, all the tribal leaders not to get, get together to say one guy when Al-Qaeda crosses our areas? Surely we've got a relationship with them. It can be done. And by Ramadan time, they said, this is the best time to act because everybody's heart is very soft on the fast. And they said, look, we're going to go. Eventually, he convinced them. He said, I'm not asking you. I'm instructing you. I'm talking about Anas's tribal leader now, telling all the other tribal leaders. And a whole lot of tribal leaders then got together and says, yes, we agree. It has to be done. The South African people have helped us a lot. It's not Yemeni culture, not our hospitality, not our way to turn down things, what they've done for us. And in Ramadan, they tried to go a few times. They said there were too many drone attacks. We had to come back. Eventually, they got there in August. They said when we got there, there was no leaders there. There were some foot soldiers. We gave them a message. We said, tell them to call us. Nobody called us. They tried again in September, 12th October, the captain going back. And they said they're going back for the last time. When they went the last, sorry, the last time, a drone killed three of them. So they took another three weeks to go, so the whole thing got delayed. And close to the end of November, they said, look, we met them. They said, we want some kind of guarantee that Pierre is alive. 
They said, put the money on the ground, you take Pierre right now. You can have him first and then give the money. On all my dealings with Al-Qaeda over that time, I realized whatever they say, they keep to their word. So when they said he's alive, I believe that he was alive. Eventually, the tribal leaders then brokered a deal and said, look, we understand you guys got no ransom money. And we understand now there was no money from the South African government. And the money never came. And by now I said, if we had the money, you think we'd leave the guy in, in locked up for so many months if we really had the money? So they saw that message sort of filtered through and they said, okay, we will take them out for a facilitation fee. So I said, that's fine. What does that mean? They said, we have to take money to cover the lives of our family members in case something happens to them and another drones kill us on the way. So we, we look at around $100,000, $120,000 in that range. And they said, it's a deal we'll work out between us and Al-Qaeda, but it's more to protect the family members. But you only pay once we deliver peer to you. No money before, up front. That's different from ransom. Ransom, you give the money first, and then you get the, the guy afterwards. So we said, fine. That kind of money, I think the family can raise. And the vastly reduced sum, the so-called facilitation fee to be paid to the tribes, was collected from friends and family. The, the initiative for that was from the Bloemfontein community. And I had very little... Um, I only had said, yes, we will do this. I had made the decision, a conscious decision, that we would raise a ransom for peace release. Um, understanding that it would be not what they would wanting, we would raise as much as we could manage to raise. And I understood that we had to do this because the government was not going to engage with the ransom thing. They were not going to pay. So it was a Bloemfontein initiative. Um, friends of Pierce stepped in and initiated the SMS and the fundraising. And we ended up trying to just figure out a way how to get the money in bags. Can <laughs> we just put it like that? As a facilitating fee. As the end of the year drew close, it finally looked like the Corky's 11-month separation was about to come to an end. But then came some very alarming news. In late November, it emerged that US and Yemeni special forces had stormed an Al-Qaeda cave hideout where a number of hostages were being held. Eight hostages were freed, mostly Yemenis. But the man the Americans had aimed to rescue, US photojournalist Luke Summers, was not among them. According to reports at the time, Summers, along with other hostages, including a South African, had been moved just before the raid. Yolandi heard about the rescue attempt in the media. The news sent chills down her spine. It was a very, very hard time to hear of, of that attempt, uh, to sense that governments had known about that attempt and I was not informed. Uh, it was a, it was an extremely difficult time. I was really unraveling emotionally. I just said, I, I can't take this anymore. I, I really had come to the end of what I could cope with. Just, just too much. Just, just getting the information out of the media, what was happening, and then trying to put a picture together, um, not knowing what's the truth. What is the truth? With the knowledge of the US-led raid, and the likelihood of another rescue attempt, and all the possibilities for failure that presented, preparations for Pierre's release gained a new kind of urgency. Al-Qaeda had threatened to kill Summers in response to the rescue mission. The hostage-takers would, no doubt, be jittery in anticipation of another attempt to free hostages by force. Eventually, it was decided that 6 December will be the day that the arrangement exchange will take place. And they'll get the facilitation money once they deliver Pierre to us. 
Friday night on the 5th of December, I had a long communication with Yolandi. She was restless, nervous, worried, tense. Is it really going to happen? As far as I know, we had moved the money and we were getting ready, making the last... Um, taking the last steps to how would he be released when he's released. Um, I was asked by Anas to write a letter to Pierre to explain to him that uh, he's now being released, he should cooperate. So, to my mind, he was being released. Saturday morning, my last communication with her, 6 December, 5.59, was the waiting is almost over. But I didn't mean a body, I meant a real person. Indeed, the wait was almost over. But the very morning Pierre was supposed to be handed over, things went terribly awry. New details this morning reveal just how agonizingly close the U.S. rescue attempt came to succeeding. It was only at the last minute as one of the guards went outside to relieve himself that the U.S. rescue team was spotted. It was a high-risk mission to begin with, under an almost full moon and with little element of strategic surprise. You say yes, you, you go forward with an operation like this because you have no other choice. Some 40 commandos from the elite SEAL Team 6 landed about six miles away from the Al-Qaeda hideout to avoid being detected by the aircraft noise. The team made its way on foot to within 100 yards of the objective when one of the Al-Qaeda guards who had gone outside to relieve himself spotted the U.S. team. What ensued was a fierce 10-minute gun battle during which both the 33-year-old American photojournalist Luke Summers and a South African teacher and aid worker, Pierre Corky, were shot by one of the Al-Qaeda guards. Julandi told Pierre's sister. Pierre's sister told the uncle. He cross-checked, he said, no, Pierre Corky is dead. How did he come to know? He said, from the, from the police uh, men from South Africa. And how did he come to know? The American embassy told him. So, after a while, while I'm... Say, I'm still in shock and I can't call you Andy now because I know she must have been distraught. The policeman calls me. He says, did you hear? I said, did I hear what? He said, Pierre Cork is dead. I said, Colonel, how sure are you about this information? He said, the American embassy called and told me. I said, but how do they know it's Pierre? Do they know what he looks like? He said, they asked me to send them a photograph. They sent a photograph to Yemen and they copied the photograph, that photograph and the body. It is Pierre, he's on the way to the ship. It is Pierre Corky and the other guy Luke Summers, they both got killed in a shootout with Al-Qaeda. I said, but why did they go something so stupid when we, we, when we had arranged that Pierre was coming out that day? So he gets a shock, I said, but I didn't know that. I said, surely the Americans know that. Everything we do, the Yemeni government knows, and the Yemeni government tells the Americans everything that is being done. So they can't tell me they didn't know that. Come on, man. Meanwhile in Yemen, Anas got the message, but he simply refused to believe the news he heard. He figured that the raid may well have happened, but for Corky to have been killed the day he was due to be released was too much to comprehend. He decided to go ahead with the original plan and send the tribal negotiators to meet with Al-Qaeda. After that, the tribes, I met the tribes at 7 o'clock and they moved, they moved to take beer out, to fetch beer. Uh, when they met Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, they were very angry after the American attack and they say, they said to the tribes, you facilitate for the American to know our place to you give them information and they attack the tribes and they killed two of the mediators of the tribe. Months of intense, high-risk negotiations were undone by the botched raid. Critics have slammed the sort of unilateral, 
guns-blazing approach typified by US actions in Yemen. Others have defended the policy that says, we don't negotiate with terrorists. But what is clear from this story is just how fraught with danger it is when civilians are left trying to free hostages on their own. Even worse, when those attempts run up against inflexible government policies. After the deaths of Summers and Corky, the Americans told several news outlets, including the New York Times and the BBC, that they weren't aware of the progress of negotiations to free Corky, nor that the South African was being held with Summers at the time of the rescue mission. It's an extremely unlikely claim, given that the Yemenis, who knew of the negotiations, were feeding intelligence to their US counterparts. Yolandi, Anas and Imtiaz all believe that it was no oversight, that the Americans knew more than they claimed. Most tellingly, according to Yolandi, the Americans got hold of Luke Summers and Pierre Corky's journals at the place of the first raid, and both contained important clues. That's what we understand, is that they retracted the journals at that stage. And, and, and again, I want to emphasize that I'm really grateful to have had to get those journals, um, and that they were willing to give them to me. That's, that is really a plus. Um, it helps for closure, and it helps a person to, to end off well. There's nothing else that I can get from Pierre um, that he had, but his body, they brought his body out and they gave me the journals, and I am really grateful. I really am. It has been over a year since Pierre was killed. Yolandi is still in Bloemfontein, and Anas and his family have made Johannesburg their new home. From afar, they have watched Yemen plunge deeper into intractable war and suffering. Um, I think being a hostage and then afterwards being a hostage, part of a hostage family, has given um, me a different perspective on how it is on both sides of this, of this coin. And I do not think people do really understand how horrible it is how ongoing it is. It's, it's an event that doesn't stop. We didn't go looking for being kidnapped. We didn't, um, we were vigilant. We were always trying to be as careful as we possibly could. We were not out trying to see if we could get into trouble. That was really not why we were in Yemen. And even in the time when we were trying to get Pierre out, that was just even as horrendous as being a hostage in a different way because I was halfway on the other continent. Part of me was still living there. I'd been released, but I was still a hostage. I was a hostage now of a different circumstance, a hostage of government policies, a hostage of, of Al-Qaeda making decisions, that other governments making decisions, you know? And my heart was still with Pierre. You've been listening to the two-part Sound Africa podcast, The Wait is Almost Over. It was produced by Mike Reddy and edited by Rasmus Bits, and that's me. If you like this story, please share it with everyone you know. You can also help us by reviewing Sound Africa in iTunes, and you can find all our stories on soundafrica.org. We're always interested in new stories and new storytellers. So if you are a journalist or some other type of storyteller with a good idea, don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you for listening. <laughs>